Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. We've talked about criminal profiling in a past episode, but there are other ways in which forensic psychologists can assist in identifying suspects of a crime. The issue is many of the long-standing accepted practices have overlooked very large limitations. Not every technique is infallible. Arguably, there isn't an infallible technique at all. I want to focus on a few traditional techniques, their applications, and their limitations. I call this episode Garbage In, Garbage Out because your investigation can only provide a similar quality outcome to what you put into it. So if you're using poor investigative techniques or poor application of techniques, your results won't be accurate or useful. Let's start with fingerprints. There's a common belief with evidence of its application dating back to 300 CE China that fingerprints are unique to the individual. The Chinese used handprints and fingerprints as evidence in trials for theft. Their use didn't pop up until mid-19th century in England, where they were used as a signature for documents to deter forgery. The quote-unquote science of fingerprints originated with Dr. Henry Folds in 1880. He described characteristics of fingerprints that are still in use today. He described the different patterns that form individual fingerprints, which include loops and whorls. He believed fingerprints didn't change and advocated for their use in identifying criminals by collecting latent fingerprints at crime scenes. Fast forward a little to Sir Francis Galton, who built on the foundation's fold set by classifying fingerprints by their shape, position, and size. The shape consisted of arches, loops, and whorls. Arches are formed by ridges that enter from one side of the pattern, they peak in the middle, and then they exit out the other side. I'll have a graphic on my Instagram post that indicates where each shape is on a fingerprint. Loops are formed by ridges entering from one side and looping back to exit the same way it entered. Whorls are formed by patterns of ridges that encompass the center circular pattern. Galton discovered there were many interruptions to these patterns, known as minutiae, that are still used as points of identity on a fingerprint today. Fingerprints seem on their surface to be a pretty good objective way of identifying someone. However, that assumes that you have perfect print samples to compare, and we all know that is highly unlikely. When fingerprint analysts compare fingerprint samples, there's a degree of subjectivity that plays into the analysis. They have to decide how much similarity between two fingerprints is enough to determine a match. Now, if you're thinking, isn't there a standard for that? The answer, shockingly, is no. When someone hears the fingerprints matched, they might think of a scene from CSI where they overlay the suspect's print on the sample and it perfectly matches at every point. That's not what it means. This means that fingerprint matching can lead to false matches. One study even claims that there could be at least a thousand unknown identification errors every year in the United States. Why would this happen? Why would an analyst report an uncertain match as a true match? Good old confirmation bias. It effectively puts horse blinders on you so that you see what you want to see. Research on fingerprint analysis shows that errors in fingerprint matching stem from information processing and decision-making errors 
that happen in our brain. One example is Marco Palacio, who was removed from his fingerprinting duties in Orlando, Florida, due to, quote, work performance issues. The whole thing is very shady, but it came out that two years prior to his demotion to clerical duty, he had below standard performance ratings from his supervisor. Even after assigning him to 40 hours of training on print analysis, along with supervisors reviewing all of his casework, he continued to perform below standard with documented repeated mistakes. Furthermore, the sheriff's office did not notify prosecutors for five months after his demotion. The implications run deep, as he worked on more than 2,600 cases ranging from 2001 to 2016. Many of his mistakes were caught by supervisors, but that was only after they had all of his work reviewed. Prior to that, he'd been in a supervisory position himself, and even claimed he had never made a mistake doing fingerprints, which was clearly a lie. When asked what sort of verification he used for fingerprint analysis, presumably to confirm a match, he said, quote, When we have a beautiful print with 25 points or more, we don't bother with the verification process. Which is troubling, because we have proof that he made errors in identifying those points to begin with. In a study testing the effect of contextual information on fingerprint analysis, analysts were told their positive identifications for certain cases had been ruled out by other experts with 100% certainty. They were then asked to assess the prints again and to ignore what they'd just been told. Most of the analysts ended up changing their minds to concur with the outside expert opinion. Another study tested latent fingerprint experts in a realistic study environment. They were told by their bosses to provide opinions on a set of latent prints. Now, unbeknownst to them, they had done analyses on these prints in the past. They were told the project was intended to look at problematic prints and assessments of prints. Over 48 experimental trials, the experts changed their past decisions on six pairs of fingerprints. Only two of the six experts were 100% consistent with past findings. The psychological context of analyzing fingerprints can have a profound effect on the outcome of the analysis. Imagine knowing facts about the case and being told these prints are from the prime suspect who is connected in other ways to the crime. This will nail them for sure. That's going to affect the way you analyze those prints, even subconsciously even if you're making a concerted effort not to let it affect your judgment. Polygraphs are another example of investigative techniques that were seen in the past to provide objective evidence of a person's guilt or innocence. We know a lot more about the limitations of polygraphs now, and thankfully the results are, for the most part, no longer admissible in court. But why were they so popular for so long? People believed that physiological processes could be directly linked to mental processes, that when people lie, they have measurable reactions to doing so. What we understand better now is that everyone reacts differently to lying, and nervousness is not synonymous with lying. Further, there are no physiological responses that are unique to lying. There are many instances where polygraphs result in incorrect readings that affect the outcome of cases. 
There are also cases where the police will lie to suspects about the outcome of the polygraph to coerce a confession. Even though polygraph results aren't admissible in court, the tests themselves are admissible. Meaning you can give the test to help guide the investigation, but the results can't be used in court. An example of this is the murder of Renee Walker, who was stabbed in her Manhattan apartment in 1980. The detective in the case arrested her friend, Matthew Johnson, who confessed only after police told him he failed the polygraph test he was given. After Johnson was in prison for 17 months, a state Supreme Court justice ruled the police used coercive tactics to obtain that confession, which could not be used against him. And some investigators still use polygraphs as a way of helping them guide the investigation. This seems pretty dangerous to me. The only thing you're learning about your suspect is how physiologically responsive or quote-unquote nervous they appear. Not whether they're actually telling you the truth or not. It also introduces the possibility, again, of confirmation bias later in the case. If you gave suspect A, let's say they're innocent, you give suspect A a polygraph and they fail. Then you decide to investigate them more looking for anything to tie them to the victim or the crime scene. You may be more willing to draw conclusions and interpret evidence as pointing to their guilt in this instance, putting you at risk of charging an innocent person with a crime. On the other hand, if suspect A passes the polygraph, then you probably won't look into them much further. Forensic hypnosis is the other topic I want to talk about. Now, I've touched on this tangentially when discussing recovered memories. Typically, forensic hypnosis involves memory enhancement. It was very popular in the 70s and 80s as a way of uncovering memories associated with trauma. Investigators and psychologists practicing hypnosis at the time believed that individuals who experienced trauma would shut off those memories as a way of coping with the trauma, and hypnosis could uncover those dissociated memories. However, as we know now, there are many issues with hypnosis. Research has shown that even though hypnosis has been shown to increase correct responses in some cases, it also increases the number of incorrect responses as well, meaning overall accuracy isn't improved. Is it really worth using hypnosis if you know that you will get just as much wrong information as right information? How would you even know what's right and what's wrong? That seems to be the biggest issue in terms of admissibility in court these days. Courts in the United States over the last few decades have ruled against the use of hypnosis results because those undergoing hypnosis are incredibly susceptible to suggestion. They may confabulate to fill in the blanks in their memory rather than drawing from a true recall. They can show memory hardening where they are more confident in the memories even if they're not true, and they may lose the ability to critically assess their memory and be more susceptible to speculation after the fact. These limitations are highlighted in the case of Elizabeth, or Betty as her friends called her, Black. She was killed in her home in Dallas, Texas in 1998. One of Betty's neighbors, Jill, was questioned as a witness for more information. She claimed she saw two men park their car in Betty's driveway on the morning she was killed. When pressed for details, she recognized the driver as the boyfriend of Betty's daughter-in-law. 
She did not know the passenger and became quite flustered when police pressed her to make a composite sketch of him. She reportedly requested to be hypnotized so she could relax. An officer who was trained in forensic hypnosis did hypnotize her, though it was his first and only hypnosis. No defining details came out of the hypnosis other than it was a thin, white man with long hair. After the hypnosis session, Betty was shown a photo array of images. Charles Flores was included in that array, but he did not match her description and she didn't immediately identify him. For the record, Charles Flores is Hispanic, a bit heavier set, with short hair. However, investigators honed in on Flores and eventually had enough circumstantial evidence to charge him with the murder of Betty. At the trial, Jill was called as a witness. Remember, she had not identified Flores at the time of her hypnosis, the phono lineup, or at any point. Though her hypnosis violated many guidelines, including the interviewer being involved in the case, not recording all persons in the room at the time of the hypnosis, and making suggestions to the hypnotee. Despite this, the judge still allowed her to take the stand. And what do you know, Jill positively identifies Flores in court as the passenger she saw. Even though Flores was associated with the daughter-in-law's boyfriend, there was no hard evidence putting him at the crime scene. Flores appealed the conviction in 2016 based on a 2013 junk science statute stating that convictions could be thrown out if they were based on discredited or misused scientific evidence. Six days before his execution date, the court granted Flores a stay of execution and the case was sent back to the lower court for review. In 2018, the lower court affirmed the original conviction, meaning Flores remained on death row. He made a final appeal to Texas's highest criminal court, which was denied in early May of this year. Now, this isn't the last step for Flores. He can still appeal his conviction in federal court. Want to know a really messed up part of this case? The man who actually killed Betty, Richard Childs, was convicted of her murder after pleading guilty. He was sentenced to 35 years and was released on parole in 2016, before Flores' original execution date. In Texas, there's this law of parties that allowed Flores, the alleged accomplice in the murder, to be charged with the same crime as the actual perpetrator. And because Childs pled guilty, he avoided the death penalty altogether, and as a result is a free man today. I presume this deal was also on the table for Flores, though he didn't take it. He does, however, deserve a fair trial, one that's not based on junk science, and one that's not based on a faulty eyewitness. Odds are, Jill remembered Flores from the mugshot she was shown, so she was identifying him from her memory, just not the right one. There are many opportunities to be skeptical about the reliability and validity of investigative techniques, even ones that are presumed to be infallible. Just because there's a match, just because someone appears nervous, and just because someone believes they remember something after being under hypnosis, doesn't make it a fact. No test is infallible. No one is completely unbiased. Everyone is susceptible to confirmation bias. The hard part is being self-aware and ask the hard questions in a case, even if it discredits our personal beliefs about that case. Thank you for listening to episode 20, the big 20. 
It's hard to believe we've made it this far. Thank you so much for being loyal listeners. I couldn't do it without your support. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends about us. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.